Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people who are known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Sina Bazila Hickey. And I'm Vinny Damapolito. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley talking with Lisa Marshall of the Renewable Heat Now campaign about the New York Heat Act. Then, Willie Terry will let us know about the Martin Luther King Jr. celebrations around the Capital Region. Later on, Moses Nagel speaks with Barbara Smith and Layla uh, Kafaga about the Albany Common Council passing a resolution calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. After that, Bria Barthel chats with Batman himself, Paul Collins Hackett, director of the Red Bookshelf. Finally, Taina Asili will be interviewing... DJ Johnny Juice in the Rhythm of Rebellion. But first, here are the headlines. Troy Mayor Kamala Mantello has city workers on Wednesday remove a homeless encampment from the land owned by RPI adjacent to Prospect Park near Congress Street. Tents, mattresses, and propane tanks were removed from the space, which had been used by as many as 15 people over the last several months. The Times Union reports that trash and potholes were among the major problems reported to the city of Albany by local residents in 2023. The city's See Click Fix website received more than 11,000 reports of quality of life issues in Albany, ranging from complaints about snow removal, graffiti, fallen trees, overflow in trash bins, sidewalk damage, n- uh, neglected pets, unsafe building conditions, street cleaning, and sinkholes. The number of graffiti complaints tripled in the last year. 3% of the city's properties were vacant, but at 921, that was the lowest number in three years. Schenectady General Services Commissioner Paul LaFond will be able to keep his $138,000 a year job as the city's general services commissioner despite having recently failed a civil service exam. The state determined that the fact that he had previously passed the exam while holding another position with the city was sufficient. Saratoga Hospital implemented a mandatory mask policy Wednesday for all visitors and patients as the number of people with respiratory diseases, including COVID-19 and the flu, it continues to rise statewide. The Daily Gazette reports that seven years after the town of Glenville was awarded a $1.5 million state grant to upgrade its public safety facility, the town has yet to receive a penny as the governor's office continues to, re- to review the funding. Consumer prices rose 0.3% in December, higher than expected, pushing the annual inflation rate to 3.4%. That's it for headlines. And for those of you just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or give us a call at 518-272-2390. For our first segment, the major climate news in Governor Hochul's State of the State address this year was her support for most of the New York Heat Act, which is designed to get the state to stop promoting the expansion of fossil fuels like natural gas and to ensure the clear that clean energy is affordable. 
We're talking with Lisa Marshall, who is Director of Organizing and Advocacy for New Yorkers for Clean Power. And earlier this week in Governor Hochul's State of the State Address, uh, many climate activists were quite excited that she announced support for what is known as the um, New York Heat Act, at least key portions of it, which is one of the major initiatives that uh, climate activists uh, Renewable Heat Now campaign has been promoting for the last uh, few years. So Lisa, can you maybe just give us a quick introduction? What is New Yorkers for Clean Power? And then, you know, what, what did Governor Hochul said that uh, warmed a lot of people's hearts? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so the New York Heat Act, HEAT stands for Home Energy Affordable Transition. And this is such an important law to pass for to move our climate plan forward. Um, the, the sort of short and pithy description is cleaner heat and lower bills. That's what the New York Heat Act does. And it basically is going to align our public service law with the climate law. Um, and it will do three key things for New Yorkers. It's going to lower utility bills, especially for um, lower and middle income families. It's going to help us fight climate change and it's going to create green jobs and healthy homes. So um, the New York Heat Act is something we've been advocating for now. This is our third year trying to get it passed. It is um, quite a little a difficult bill to completely understand and to, and to pass. The fossil fuel industry has been lobbying and spreading misinformation to try to stop this bill from passing, but we have incredible momentum going into this year. And Governor Hochul's support is absolutely pivotal and important for us to get it passed in the budget. Now, we have had uh, probably oh, four or five stories about the New York heat cat. Uh, a lot of people know it as the um, the 100 foot rule to basically stop allowing um, people to hook up, expand gas pipelines for free, big subsidy if they're within 100 feet. But one of the other big things was to try to cap the uh, size of uh, utility bills, particularly for low and I guess moderate income people, at 6% of their uh, income. That part did not pass. And, and to be honest, for a lot of legislators, that was what they were using to try to promote it, um, you know, to the average, you know, voter. Um, are there other things that uh, Hogan might be pursuing with respect to trying to um, make sure that this transition is affordable, particularly for low and, and moderate income people? Yes, and you're right, Mark. She didn't put the 6% household limit of income on for utility bills into her um state proposal, but she did talk about energy affordability. She made some specific recommendations that would make it more affordable, especially for households that move to electrification. That means, you know, heating and cooling with heat pumps instead of with fossil fuel systems. We don't want that to make people's bills go up. Um, and some other, you know, proposals that would help um, manage um, bill of utility bill affordability for folks. But we do really need more. Uh, we already have very unaffordable utility, er, you know, energy costs for our low-income folks in New York, and we need as much relief as we can possibly get. And we do intend to um, fight very hard for um, the affordability um, piece to be in the final budget through the one-house budgets. Um, 
we'll see what happens in the legislature next. Um, we do expect and hope that the Senate will pass the bill as it is, as they've done um, the last couple of years. And the, the real fight now is in the assembly to make sure that um, all of these pieces, the fossil fuel subsidies that we're trying to end, that the governor's supporting the obligation to serve, um, which you know basically means that the gas utilities have to keep building more gas pipes and um, instead of building some of the thermal energy networks and renewable solutions that we know we need um, and and the um, affordability cap. I will just say too that ending the 100 foot rule and changing the obligation to serve, these are also affordability measures, but they're not ones people will feel in their pocketbooks right away. Basically what they're doing is avoiding future costs that would be absolutely prohibitive. So it's a little tricky to talk about future costs that are avoided because people don't see their bill go down, but it would be horrifying to see bills go up the way they're projected to if we don't um, pass this act. So there's two kinds of, or several kinds of affordability folded into this one bill. Now, the, the state of the state is sort of the, uh, the good news exercise, almost like a, a can't pain speech, you talk about the good things, and then the real details um, come out on the budget bills, which is, in, in this case, is coming out, um, I, I believe, on the 16th. Uh, you know, when we talk about trying to make sure that the, the rules for the Public Service Commission, which one of the things to do is overseas utilities in New York State, actually align with the goals of the climate law, the CLCPA, to reduce emissions. You mentioned a few of them, but, you know, what is that process going to look like? And, and what are some of the things that, you know, climate advocates hope that the Public Service Commission begins to, you know, change its position on? Yeah, well... The Public Service Commission right now is in the process of asking all of the utilities who provide gas to submit plans on how they're going to comply with this with the climate law with the CLCPA, right? But right now, the Public Service Commission is limited because we haven't passed the New York Heat Act. So they can't tell utilities to take our money to put it into heat pumps and thermal energy networks, because our law says that it's in the interest of New Yorkers for the utilities to provide them with gas. It doesn't say provide them with essential energy services. That's what it should say, right? Because gas was, it, it's just one kind of energy service. So it's really important to pass the New York Heat Act. This will actually give the PSC or the Public Service Commission the authority to, um, direct the utilities to put in gas plans that are truly compliant with our climate law instead of um, trying to put forward, you know, continue pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the gas system for decades to come and continuing that those gas emissions for decades to come. We really need real solutions um, that get us off gas. And of course, the utilities don't want to give us those real solutions. So the PSC needs the New York Heat to Act to pass. It's not really just their decision. They need this policy to change so that they have more power to do that. Now, the, as I said, the budget's coming out next week, and there's also other legislative matters. 
Are there other, you know, key issues that uh, renewable um, heat now campaign or New York is a clean power in the last two minutes are hoping to see, you know, either the governor or the state legislators advance uh, during this session? Yeah, um, the Renewable Heat Now campaign is, which is, as you know, is a campaign made up of many, many organizations. Um, we are laser focused on the New York Heat Act for the budget. That said, we really want to see um, a fund being created for um, affordable pre-electrification. Um, that's like, say you have a house that you would like to put a heat pump into, but it just can't support that renewable energy system because it doesn't have the insulation and it can't get the insulation because there's problems with the house. Maybe there's lead or mold or old wiring and there's no fund um, to make those upgrades for homes. And that's a real barrier for many people. So this is something we're working on legislation for. It's not quite been introduced yet. And, and I will point out is that I believe buildings are actually the largest source of greenhouse emissions in the state. Absolutely. And that's why we're so focused on building decarbonization, Marcus, because so because if you include the emissions from burning fossil fuels in buildings, plus the methane that leaks, um, it is absolutely the biggest source of carbon emissions in New York. Um, so then and the other things that we'd like to see are, you know, seconds. the governor did put some. Um, money towards the Empower Plus program um, to get more money out to low-income households for weatherization. We'd like to continue to see those things year after year. We, we've been talking with Lisa Marshall uh, from the New Yorkers uh, for Clean Power, the Renewable Heat Now campaign, and this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. The coalition is sponsoring an Advocacy Day on Tuesday, January 23rd. For more information on their events, you can check out their website, renewableheatnow.org. And if you would like to hear more stories on how climate change is impacting our communities, you can find more stories at mediasanctuary.org. And now we turn to roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry reporting on a list of programs and activities in the Capital Region commemorating Dr. Reverend Martin Luther King's Junior's birthday and his life in the freedom struggle. This is Willie Terry, a Roman labor correspondent for the Hudson Mohawk Network. On Monday, uh, January the 15th, the nation, the county, the city, the state will pause to celebrate Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. January the 15th is his real birthday, and it's not the day that was proposed to be celebrated by the uh, nation. And what I want to do today is to uh, give you some uh, information on programs and activities that will be happening on January the 15th, and some will happen prior to January the 15th, and some will happen after the 15th. So if you got a pen and paper, you could take down this information, because if you're off, it'll be a good idea to go and attend one of these programs. The Martin Luther King Committee of the Troy Area United Ministry will hold a Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King program on Sunday, uh, January the 14th, 2024, at 4 p.m. And this will take place at the Baptist, Baptist Church, which is located at 2165 Fifth Avenue, 
and that's in Troy, New York. And the speakers will be Reverend Nicole Jean Simone and Pastor Duray from Memorial A&M Zion Church. And the same group also will be holding another program on Monday, January the 15th, and this will start at 8 a.m. It will be a community breakfast, and it will be held at the Hilton Inn Garden, which is located at 235 Hoosick Street in Troy, New York. And there will be a speaker, a Reverend Amari Tenon Santos, and this, who's with the Schenectady Community Ministry. Now, there's a price to get into that particular event, and that price is $40. So if you need uh, more information, you could call 518-274-5920, extension 20. Or you could go on the website at www.taum.org to get information about those programs. Tomorrow, uh, Friday, uh, January the 12th, the NAACP uh, youth uh, will hold their council meeting in which they will be uh, celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday. And this will take place at the Boys and Girls Club of the Capital Area. And that that's located at 1700 7th Avenue, Troy, New York. And it will take place from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. And on that program, they would have information on the uh, about education. And if you want more information, uh, you could go on the NAACP Troy Branch website or contact them at Troy New York NAACP at gmail.com. And that's the uh, youth council of the NAACP. Now, on Monday, the NAACP will hold a Martin Luther King Day celebration that's sponsored by Team Hero and the NAACP. And those doors will open at 2 p.m., and the ending time for this program is 5 p.m. And they say it's a family-friendly program. They will have education activities, live performances, and free food and beverage. And this will take place again at the Boys and Girls Club, which is located at 1700 7th Avenue, and that's Troy, New York. Also on Monday, the Capital District Area Labor Federation will hold a Martin Luther King Day of Service, in which they are uh, asking for volunteers to come to the Regional Food Bank of the Northeastern New York, which is located at 965 Albany Shaker Road, and that's in Latham, New York, where they will be uh, helping the uh, food pantry put together boxes and packages to be uh, shipped to people who need food. And this will take place at the warehouse from 9 to 2.30 p.m. if you can volunteer. And they say they need 30 people for each shift. So if you want more information about that, you can contact the Capital District Area Labor Federation at 518-779-5059.
you want more information about volunteering for that uh, event. In Albany on the, on the 15th, there'll be a Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. interface celebration. And this will take place at the first church in Albany, or the first church in Albany, Reformed Church, I guess. And uh, it will start at 7 p.m. And this year's speaker will be the Reverend Dr. Mashona Watson, who's the senior minister of the First Church of Albany. And there will be music and a festival celebration and a choir. And this will take place in Albany. So they don't have any number for information, but like I said, it will take place at the First Church in Albany. On the 14th, the Saratoga Spring United Methodist Church, which is located at 175 Fifth Avenue, Saratoga Spring, will hold a celebration of Dr. King at 10 a.m. And that's being sponsored by a coalition of groups, sorry, the Martin Luther King Saratoga uh, Committee. Now, they have a, a whole list of activities that will be taking place from Friday on to the 15th. And uh, you could go on their website, uh, which is mlksaratoga.org, to get information about all the activities that are taking place in Saratoga. And one event that will be taking place on the 16th of January, it will be taking place in Schenectady at Union College. Derek Johnson, who's president and CEO of the NAACP, will uh, be at the college on Tuesday, January the 16th at 5.30 p.m. And that's in the Knox N-O-T-T Memorial uh, place there. And he will talk about how far we have come and where we need to go. And this event is free and open to the public. Uh, you can register for this event by going to uh, Union College uh, website. Now, Derrick Johnson is the uh, former vice chairperson of the NAACP, National Board of Directors, and president of the Mississippi State Chapter. Uh, Johnson was appointed the national organization leader in October 2017. And the social justice focus group has more than 2,200 branches nationwide. Under Johnson's leadership, it says that the NAACP has undertaken efforts such as the logout Facebook campaign, pressuring Facebook after reports of uh, Russian hackers targeting African Americans, the Jamestown to Jamestown partnership marking 400 years that enslaved Africans first touched the shores of America. And we are doing done dying campaign exposing the inadequacies embedded in the American healthcare system and the country at large. The long-standing member and leader of the NAACP, Mr. Johnson has helped guide the association through a period of re-envisioning and reinvigorating the NAACP states, state chapters. And you could get information about that by going to the NAACP uh, website. And he was born in Detroit. Johnson attended Tougaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi, and South Texas. 
College of Law in Houston. He received fellowship from the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, the George Washington University School of Political Management, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He has served as an annual guest lecturer on social movements at the Harvard Law School. He's a regular commentator on the civil rights issues. Johnson is frequently featured on CNN, MSNBC, CBS, and ABC, and other news outlets. The talk, this talk is sponsored by the Office of Intercultural Affairs, the Chief Diversity Office, and the Capital Region, um, I guess, Connecticut County Chamber of Commerce. So those are a few of the events that will happen from January the 12th to January the 16th that you could uh, attend if you're off that day. Or if you work and get off in the evening time, a lot of the events were taking place, you know, after work. Don't forget to celebrate the life, the time, and legacy of a great freedom fighter, Dr. Martin Luther King. Thank you. This Friday and Monday, we will be celebrating the Reverend Doctor by playing his speech on the Vietnam War. Be sure to tune in. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, I'm Vinny Damapolito. And I'm Sina Bazila Hickey, and you can hear that Vietnam speech on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, and WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Up next, Moses Nagel spoke with Barbara Smith, who is a member of Jewish Voices for Peace, and Kayla Kafaga, a local Palestinian-American advocate and business owner, about the Albany Common Council passing a resolution on January 4th calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. The resolution is the first of its kind in New York State and came about through the organizing of a large and diverse coalition of community members. Our community, obviously, after October 7th has been struggling. We feel choked. We feel like we have to do more. And a group of us have been in communication, working on a few advocacy moves and trying to get our voices heard a little more, whether it's through the school district, whether it's, you know, at work where people are feeling that they can't express themselves or they're hesitant to speak. In all of that, we found there's a need in this community to create a voice. Zarina Jalal is the one who initiated the conversations with the Albany Common Council since they passed the resolution on October 16th that we need a an equivalent resolution displaying our Muslim Arab voice in this aggression that's happening overseas. So with Zarina um, initiating that, Mahak Jimian was pulled in, um, and they began the conversations. And as the Palestinian in the group, I was pulled in to represent specifically the Palestinian voice in the resolution. And that's sort of where it all began. 
Um, I believe it began the first week of November because at the same time we pulled in Jewish Voice for Peace as well as some local priests and Christian faith leaders. I became aware of this a little bit before the December 4th Common Council meeting. And Layla just referred to a resolution that was passed on October 16th. And if people listening do not know, that was a resolution expressing solidarity with the state of Israel and also uh, talking about the horrible attack that happened on October 7th in Israel. So that resolution that came to the council at the first council meeting after October 7th. But as I said, I got involved a little bit before uh, the December 4th council meeting, and there was no resolution on the books. There was nothing in writing at that point. But proactively, because I'm a member of JVP, of Jewish Voice for Peace, I heard about that effort to go and speak. And a number of people spoke that day without there even being language that we were actually responding to, saying that we... uh, felt there was a deep need for a resolution calling for ceasefire. I was at the meeting, I think just before Christmas, where there was a lot of people outside and many people spoke at the meeting, but the resolution did not come up for a vote. Can you tell me anything about that meeting and what happened then? So the December 18th meeting, the wording of the resolution was not accepted by majority of the council. So it was not up for vote. It wasn't going to be presented. So at that point, we knew it wasn't going to be voted on that day. So we made an effort to get as many people there from our community to represent the cause and to demand the ceasefire in all of our speeches. So from when this started, the resolution was drafted. The Common Council, the number one thing they said was, this language is offensive and controversial. So we cannot present it. So that's why the language and the details of the language went back and forth for about, I wanna say four to so weeks. Look, at the end of the day, we knew this was not gonna implement a ceasefire in, in Israel and Palestine. We knew this was not going to get that win. What this is showing, it's the solidarity with the Muslim Arab community for us to stand on our own and to have a voice, especially given the resolution that Barbara mentioned that was passed October 16th. So for us, having that language that was accurate, there was, it was not opinion, it was accurate historical statements that occurred and factual statements. So it is something that we needed to have the strong statement and our community was adamant that it was more important for us to have a strong statement that we are, we stand by or not have a resolution at all. And unfortunately, at the last minute, um, when they did present the resolution, which we were unaware of that they were actually going to vote on it on, when was that, January 4th, last Thursday, we did not know. We were under the impression it was going to go to committee. They decided to vote on it. Before voting on it, they did add a few phrases in there and statements in there that we were not aware of to get it passed they were making changes to the resolution in real time after the council meeting had started. And because I was a member of the Common Council for eight years, I understand procedurally 
most of what's going on. There was a point at the meeting last Thursday where most of the people who were on the council were not in the room. They had left, and that never happened. And so it was very clear that they were doing something outside of the chamber, and they were doing it during the meeting. And, of course, that caused a great deal of alarm. And I want to say about the original resolution, it was about four pages or five pages long. And just as Layla said, everything in it was a fact. There was a, were a lot of quotes and a lot of citations from the United Nations, from other kinds of entities that were really just talking about this many thing ha things happened, this many people died, this many people no longer have anywhere to live. But the Albany Common Council as a whole saw those things as offensive. And the final resolution, I guess, is two pages long. It was shortened because people did not want the details of what's actually going on in Gaza. What impact do you think this passing has? Well, it has both local impact, national and international impact passage of this resolution. What I found most gratifying in the process, and I've been politically active since I was a teenager in the 1960s. I don't mind any, telling anybody how old I am. I'm old. But having had all those decades of experience, this was one of the most remarkable experiences I have ever had in the context of doing organizing. What was so moving to me was the outpouring of people in the Muslim, Arab, American, and in some cases, Palestinian American community. I was just so blown away because what people were talking about was so personally tragic to anyone who has a heart, our brain, our ears. And bringing together people and having uh, people who've been marginalized finally seen in a place like Albany is huge. It's so important that the city councils around the country are doing what they are doing, which is to pass these ceasefire resolutions. And there are probably about 15 uh, local uh, cities. We're the first in New York State to pass a ceasefire resolution. But San Francisco just passed one on Tuesday, two days ago. It's a, it's a movement. It's a, something that local governments can do and that communities can do to speak out and to really manifest a stance that is visible to be seen. Being the first town or city in the state of New York to pass a ceasefire re resolution speaks volumes. And that, that is why it was so important for our community to have this pass. And for me, as a first-generation Palestinian American, to go into the council meetings and to see such diversity of people there from all races, all religions, all backgrounds there in support for this was extremely emotional and overwhelming because for us, it's usually we're underrepresented or we're not spoken of, we're never involved, we're never even a thought. So for us to have that voice and to see those many, that such diversity there, I was, I was blown away by it. It was, it was extremely emotional because we're usually standing on our own. So, and that's why this, the ceasefire resolution and all the other cities and towns in the, in the country that are passing these resolutions, it's speaking out and showing the majority of public opinion 
around the world, globally, everywhere, is to cease fire and the support for the Palestinian people. Well, whenever I talk to anyone about this, about the situation happening there, it is always stated that it's so complex and it's confusing. It's really not. And all I ask, I'm not asking for our local community to go, you know, to protest, to go demand from the representative. If they feel comfortable doing that, great. But what we would love to see from our community is just open your eyes and your hearts to the Palestinian story, to the Muslim story, and just consider it a little more and don't make assumptions. Remove your bias, remove your assumptions, and start educating yourself a little more with what is happening there because it's not always as it seems. If you would like to hear more from Jewish Voices for Peace, you can find uh, their in, you can find their point of view at their website, JewishVoiceForPeace.org. And the documentary film The Right to Read captures the stories of those who organized around the right to read and demanding that teaching focus on phonics and other proven techniques. A screening of this is coming to Albany on January fifteenth. Bria Barthel reports. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and today I am in the office of a wonderful organization called The Red Bookshelf with Batman himself, Paul Collins Hackett, who is director of The Red Bookshelf, and he's want, we're here to talk about an upcoming event, but Batman, perhaps you can start off by telling us, what's The Red Bookshelf? Well, first of all, Thank you so much for being here in the space with us and for, you know, graciously spending your time here with us listening to me talk. We very much appreciate you and everything you do for us here at the Red Bookshelf, which consists of helping us get books out to kids. Uh, at the Red Bookshelf, our mission is to inspire children to read, and we do that by giving away free books at community-based locations wherever their kids are at. So whether it's a doctor's office, a barber shop, a school, you name it, we try and place our bookshelf strategically so that kids can always have access to free books. The more they have access to books, the more likely they are to read, the more positively impacted they are in their education as they go out their lives. And Red doesn't just... Um happen to match the color of the bookshelves they set up, but it also stands for Read Every Day. So, whoops, I was just corrected, Read Each Day. And besides distributing the books, your organization is involved with other aspects of child literacy. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we are crazy about reading over here. So we do anything to motivate kids to engage children to engage families and to normalize reading across the board. Um, so in addition to the workshops that we host and some of the superhero academies we have in schools and all the other cool things, we're actually going to be showing a movie on January 15th called The Right to Read. Now, and this was something that is about different approaches to reading, and it actually was scheduled before uh, Governor Hochul called out the importance of phonics and other new, new, new well, new old approaches to, to literacy training. Yeah, you know, we've been singing our song for some time, so it's it's definitely great to see that the governor is on board and should be in support of everything that we're doing. Hope she comes to the movie showing, you know, but if not, we'll catch up with her after since we're all on the same page and working toward the same results. And tell us a little bit about the movie. 
So the movie The Right to Read is an incredible documentary about a group of parents who worked with activists in their school district to change the way reading was taught to their children. They actually were able to work with the school district themselves and change the curriculum and the approaches and everything else to positively impact the reading scores for all their children in their city. It's an incredibly motivating story of what can happen when we all work together for the best of our young people. So here, we're going to be hosting a showing of the movie. We're bringing in people from the schools, and we're bringing in some teachers, and we're bringing in parents so that we can all talk about how we can work together to serve our kids to the best of our ability. Now, you mentioned bringing in people, but it's also open to the public, right? Yep, it is open to the public, and it is free, 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 free. I wasn't quite clear. Is there a charge for it? Not this time. This one showing is going to be free, actually. And where and when is it being shown? January 15th at 6 p.m. at Capitol Rep on Pearl Street. I understand that Red Bookshelf is just one of the many sponsors that are collaborating in bringing this to Albany. Oh, absolutely. Our good friends over at the Wizard's Wardrobe are also partnering because they prioritize children's literacy. We're partnering with the Albany Public Library because obviously they champion literacy every single day. And we're also partnering with the NAACP because that was the, the membership of the activists who actually helped in the movie itself. So a great way to coordinate all of our resources to maximize our collective impact. People talk about Smalbany with disdain sometimes, saying, oh, everybody knows everybody. But I think that that collaborative spirit that is behind everybody knowing everybody is wonderful. Yeah, the, the coordination of resources. You know, our city isn't that big, and it's hard to affect change on a national scale to know where you can be involved and where you can be impactful. I'm very happy that when we coordinate resources and opportunities, we're able to provide tangible ways for people to be impactful on a local level, just showing everybody what a superhero looks like in real life. So you've mentioned superheroes. Maybe you can tell us something about a superhero academy? Well... Um, and one of the best things that we do is our superhero academies. It's so much fun. We actually have volunteers in our staff. I am Batman. We have Nightwing who goes in in full uniform, you know, face mask and paint and armor and everything else. But we talk to kids about being good people, about why we help other people. And not for nothing, you know, kids may make promises to me about reading that they don't necessarily keep. But when they promise Spider-Man that they're going to finish their reading, they keep that promise and it works. So using superheroes as pop culture icons and rock stars who are credible messengers for the kids to encourage reading organically so that we don't have to twist their arm. So when you talk about the Superhero Academy, this is a one-off event or this is an ongoing event with schools or how does it work? It's an everything of everything because it's a way of life for us. So in certain situations when people want us to come in for an hour and do our superhero thing, not a problem. We have a middle school who wants us to come back on a weekly basis and work with their kids. Not a problem. We have Titans that we mentor outside of the Red Bookshelf and everything else. So we work with kids anytime we can just to offer them opportunities and help them be superheroes. Now you talked about giving away books for free. So not just going in and doing presentations, but actually giving away books and leaving them in public places. How many books do you distribute and where do you get them from? We distribute over 75,000 books a year. Those come from largely donations from the community. A lot of people who have a favorite book and want another young person to have that same experience they had, they'll donate the book, we'll clean it up to make sure there's no markings, and the new person, the new owner, has a book that feels like it's almost new. How many different locations do you distribute books in? 
We have bookshelves at about 40 locations throughout Albany, and we're working on expanding, and none of that would be possible without incredible volunteers like you. Because what we do relies on volunteers, we're able to work with young people, college students, retired folks, people who have a day off, and everyone kind of comes to the Red Bookshelf to help kids read. It's very welcoming here, and we try our best to have some snacks and some water when we can, and it creates a, a community. And in this community, everyone is really happy because we're all just helping kids. And is there an age range of people who volunteer, or an age range or grade level of who you give the books to? Um, we really prioritize young readers, so third grade and around that, but we really want everyone to read. So we have opportunities to engage readers of all levels. And as far as volunteers, we'll take volunteers of any age or background. It doesn't matter to me. As long as they have your energy, we'll take them. Getting back to the movie, remind us again of when it's happening. January 15th at 6 p.m. at Capitol Rep on Pearl Street. And it's the story of people who fought for improved literacy training. Tell us a little more about that. Yeah, so um, parents noticed that the kids in their schools weren't learning how to read effectively. The teaching strategies were outdated and didn't give lasting impacts. So there's a, a better curriculum out there. There's a phonics-based curriculum about how we break down words and how we learn to read. They convinced their school with the help of activists and a, a group of concerned citizens to change their curriculum and to change the way teaching reading was taught. And that was incredibly impactful and their reading scores improved and everything got better. So we're very much looking to capture the same spirit of, hey, listen, if we have a, a reading crisis on our hands and everyone's prioritizing it, how do we do that together? How do we do that effectively? And it was a couple of years ago, so they made the documentary in collaboration with the NAACP and wanted to get the word out, again, in order, hoping to replicate the results in other places. And if people wanted more information about the movie or about the showing or about the Red Bookshelf, where do they go? You can follow us on social media at the Red Bookshelf Everything. Like, subscribe, and share. And you can also find information on the Capitol Rep website or at the Albany Public Library with their listed screenings and uh, the link to buy tickets. Um, for other events, please stay tuned to the Red Bookshelf social media. And we'll always have flyers about all the cool things that are doing. And you can come and see us and it'll be a great time. And uh, what other kinds of things are you planning to do this year? I know you don't have dates worked out, but what, what types of events are you thinking about? Um, we want to do all the crazy things. So we want to have superheroes in the parks. We want to have movie showings. We're going to have bookmobiles driving around giving free books. If there's a thing, we'll be added because the best part about what we do, there's a book about everything. So we can be a part of every event and encourage reading in every facet of what happens in this community. Okay, and again, that's Paul Collins Hackett, The Batman working with uh, Nightwing and others at the Red Bookshelf. And the address? Address of the Red Bookshelf is 200 Green Street. That's where you can find us and all the other cool people that are doing stuff. Thanks a lot. And that's Batman. This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, signing off. Ever since I heard this quote from George R.R. R. Martin, known for writing the Game of Thrones series, it has lived rent-free in my head. A reader lives a thousand lives before they die. The man who never reads lives only one. All right. <laughs> and we finish off today's show with the Rhythm of Rebellion. This week, Taina Seeley highlights DJ Johnny Juice.
Welcome to another episode of The Rhythm of Rebellion. I'm your host, Taina Sealy, and today we delve into the world of a true musical legend. DJ Johnny Juice is an award-winning composer, producer, turntablist, engineer, musician, b-boy, graffiti writer, MC, educator, lecturer, percussionist, and mentor. Raised in the Bronx, he was on the front lines when hip-hop emerged right on his doorstep. His work, especially with Public Enemy, is woven into the very fabric of hip-hop history. DJ Johnny Juice's production and scratching skills have graced projects by legendary artists like the Beastie Boys, Slick Rick, Leaders of the New School, and DMC. In 2008, he was inducted into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame as a member of Public Enemy, and he took the stage with them in 2013 as they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Hey, Johnny. Welcome to the Rhythm of Rebellion. How you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. I am very excited to have you on the show today. I wanted to see if you could share some of your insights into how you witnessed the birth of hip hop and how those early experiences contributed to your life, as well as the culture of music and social change in your community. Well, um, I was fortunate to have been raised in the Bronx in the 70s, right as the Fania Salsa movement started catching uh, strength and, and speed. And coincidentally, hip hop was kind of almost formed in a parallel uh, path. It's no coincidence that both of them occurred in New York City, specifically the Bronx area, primarily because of uh, New York being such a melting pot. I watched a whole bunch of artistic expression congeal and form the basis and the, and the foundation of what would be hip hop. I saw the Boogaloo movement where there was um, Latin music, but with English lyrics. I experienced the James Brown phenomenon with the breaks. Not surprisingly, a lot of those breaks like Give It Up, A Turn It Loose. The break was essentially James Brown freestyling over a conga bed mm. so if you're saying well there's no latino influence i'm like well then why is it clap your hands mm. uh, mm. i would say that right so that rhythm was essential and i just did there wasn't any what is that you're doing what do we call this and yeah. i got to see this firsthand so i didn't know anything else but that mm-hmm how would you say those early experiences influenced social change in your community? Well, the hip hop movement that came out of the Bronx was a direct result of benign neglect, which was a social political experiment uh, that was actually uh, sanctioned by the U.S. president at the time, basically denying uh, social and necessary services to, to the citizens of New York City, especially mm -hmm. the Bronx. So police, fire, garbage disposal, all of that. Uh, garbage was piling up. We have these poles in New York where you could press a red one for fire and a blue one for the police. And they wouldn't answer those. And uh, there was a lot of um, tenement owners that were burning down their buildings for insurance money. There was a movement to get us all out of the Bronx. So mm. hip hop was literally a response to that. Mm. And there was a couple of events that actually 
gave that movement some kind of uh, traction nationwide. One was the blackout of 1977. When that happened, people started looting. There was a lot of news coverage, obviously. Also, the Yankees went to the World Series in 77 and in 78. Hmm. And when the blimp, you know, they had this the Goodyear blimp flying around. The Goodyear right. blimp would fly around, and this is televised nationwide. Mm-hmm. And you can see fires all around the Bronx. It's like, what is going on in the Bronx right now? Mm. One of the number one teams, the number one team of all time, New York Yankees, they're playing in the World Series, and they are surrounded by fires. Mm. It looks surreal. And I'm sure a lot of people are like, hey, you know, what's what's going on over there? So these things, you know, nothing happens in a vacuum, as they say. So your work with Public Enemy has become, you know, iconic in the world of hip hop. Can you take us behind the scenes and share some moments where you really saw the impact that music had as a vehicle for change? I started life as a youth playing on my grandfather's bongos and his and his congas. That's how I started. When I transitioned to being a DJ, I started scratching like I was playing my congas on my bongos. Mm. So instead of the jiggy jiggy jiggy, I would so my scratches were basically an emulation of my percussive style. Wow. And um, when I met Public Enemy, I moved to Long Island eventually, you know. And uh, we heard this other crew that was pretty well known on Long Island were having a contest, looking for people. So we went. And um, I battled and I won the DJ competition. Mm. And that group that had the contest became Public Enemy. Mm. Now, I remember it very well because we were the only kids, you know, maybe 16 and there was a line around the block, and I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> I don't know how this is gonna go out for to go for us. But I, I bought in a certain b boy aesthetic, you know. So I was online, and one guy came up to me and he looks at me and he goes, well, "Who are you supposed to be?" I'm like, "I don't know. Who are you supposed to be?" <laughs> you know? Yeah. So he looked at me, and he looked at the guy that was behind him, and he goes, "I like this guy, <laughs> right?" I ended up winning, and that guy was Hank Shockley, the guy that started the Bomb Squad. Hmm. And the guy he was talking to was MC Chuck E.D., the guy that became Chuck D. Mm. So my attitude, you know, which is a very hip-hop attitude, you know, let's do this and, you know, I'm ready to burn everybody, let's go, kind of helped push me over the edge there. And that started my kind of career and, you know, in, in the making records portion of my of my journey. But it also... It also lit a fire under me because Chuck D realized, yo, this guy's serious. Because there was a lot of people on that line. And there was other people that were picked. I was the only DJ, but there was other MCs that were picked. And he was very particular about who was serious and who he would mentor. And it ended up being me. Hmm. So Hmm. I think that um, not only should you be creative or, you know, do what you do, but... You have to have a, you should have, you shouldn't have to do anything, but you you should have some kind of really burning inside desire to really get real good at your craft. Right. And develop it. Because some people just do, but sometimes that's not enough. Sometimes you got to really work hard at it if you really want to be somewhere. Hmm. 
I love the way that you describe your craft as a DJ connected to your playing as a percussionist, as a nation that survived enslavement, survived colonization. You know, percussion was also a tool of resistance. It was yes. reclaiming our humanity in the face of humanity, reclaiming our culture. It's interesting to me because the way that you describe that now, the work that you did and do as a DJ it almost feels like an extension of that. Does that resonate with you at all? Oh, absolutely. Dancing was my first artistic expression. Mm. Probably the most purest form of expression is dance. Right. Because you don't have to think of a word to say something, or you don't have to write anything down, or you don't have to grab a piece of vinyl to scratch it. It just happens with your body. Eventually, when I started playing congas, again, it's an extension of my feeling. It's just but where I hit and then extended to the turntables, extension of my arms, except it's now, instead of a round disc that I hit, it's a round disc that I manipulate. Mm. So all of this is all part of a, phys a physically rhythmic routine that my body has already conditioned itself mm -hmm. to actually create or, or to interpret how I feel. Mm. And I think that's missing now because... When people sit down to create, they're not really creating, they're manufacturing. Mm, tell it. So so they'll sit there and say, uh, I need to write this song for this certain demographic that does this. And it's kind of like making dog food. I got to make dog food for large <laughs> canines that actually taste good for them. So no one ever says they create dog food. They say they manufacture it. Mm -hmm. What I do is I express and then later I find out where that can fit. Yeah. But it has to have a feeling first. Listen to the full episode of this podcast at therhythmofrebellion.com. Thanks for listening. Taina Seely and The Rhythm of Rebellion. We have uh, little 10-minute uh, versions, thanks to Moses Nagel, for our website for uh, Hudson Mohawk Magazine. And there will be another one next week. And that is our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Sina Bazilahiki. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Moses Nagel, Bria Barthel, and Taina Asili. Uh, we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag, or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform. We appreciate you listening. Until next time.